Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're going to be answering some more of your questions. I've got two very specific ones here, beautifully written out by supporters over on Patreon. One of them is about rigging and mainsails and very kind of technical, but I'll try and make sure it's got enough uh, interest for for all kinds of sailors that uh, you'll be able to get in on the problem and understand why I'm suggesting the solution I am. And the other one is about building crews, building teams and making the sailing that you're doing with your family more enjoyable for them. So two very different aspects, but of course, of the same pursuit of sailing. So many things that we have to bear in mind when we go sailing, right down to exactly how the rigging works and exactly how the mainsail is cut. And then across to how do I keep my teenage boys from hating sailing, even though it's wet and cold and nasty. So let's let's dive into those two. And a quick reminder that if you haven't already, there's an opportunity to go over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there you can help support the podcast, the YouTube channel, uh, the upcoming newsletter, which is going to be a new thing very soon, starting next week. I'm excited about that. Um, that's $5 a month. And any of the Patreons, if you want to send me a text message or, or something through Patreon with a quick question about your boat, always happy to help. And of course, for those who are engaging with Patreon at a higher tier level, putting a little bit more in per month, I'm happy to go into more depth. I can be, and I'm happy to be your kind of guy with the answers uh, at the other end of the phone, um, as long as people don't take the piss <laughs> within reason, you know. Um, so let's have a look at this one first. This is from Tom. Tom's a long-term supporter. He and I have sailed thousands of miles together and uh, he has got himself a beautiful little boat called an RM1050. Um, those little RMs are owned by people like Francois Gabar, who won the, let me just put myself out on a limb here, was that the 2016 Vendée Globe? I'm not going to look it up. I think it was 2016. Um, and Rich Wilson's got one as well. He's done that three times that I know of. He's done the Vendée Globe. So these are very experienced people who are choosing to buy an RM1050. Um, it's intended as a shorthanded voyaging boat, uh, 34 feet, composite construction, uh, twin asymmetric bulbed, um, uh, what are they called, uh, bilge, bilge plates. So like two bilge, uh, what do they call those? Like little keels, bilge keels. Man alive, I should know this stuff, right? <laughs> I'm your guy with the answers apart from don't ask me about bilge keelers. But uh, my dad had a, a westerly nomad back in the day. And uh, I'm very aware of how beneficial it is to have the weight under the boat, but in a way that you can sit the boat down onto. I always think that's a, a, a fantastic um, thing to have in a boat that in some far flung place, you can just get it high on a beach kind of uh, careen it almost is not quite the same as it because it won't lean over but uh, things like the the Southerlies you can do that as well and of course the Alubats and um, but the RM1050 has a, a loyal band of uh, of sailors following what they're uh, doing and uh, Tom is one of them Tom bought the RM1050 that he has just a little while ago and he's been enjoying some incredible sailing out in the I think it's French Polynesia and Hawaii Tom's out in Hawaii but um, he he travels extensively around the islands that are close to him and I have to say that when I'm texting with him he, he sent me a, uh, a link to his last voyage and uh, I was looking at it and looking at the beautiful conditions that I could see on Predict Wind where he was and on the same day it was um, zero Celsius here in uh, Nova Scotia, light smattering of snow and fog in the forecast. And I thought, wow, I really, I need to change up my game. <laughs> so Tom's come back from uh, this voyage and he's got a few things that he wanted to ask me. It's a long question. We'll go through it in, in parts here. But as I say, I think there's a lot that can be taken from this. And what I'm hoping is that if you have any questions about why boats are tending to have these big square topped mainsails and how you might implement that on your boat, why people are doing it, how to work with the rigging afterwards, this hopefully will give you some kind of answer. So let's jump in with Tom's uh, question here. He says uh, the boat's needing a few more repairs than I would like, but I'm learning that goes with boat ownership. Well, absolutely. And if you can get a 50-50 division between time spent uh, working on the boat and time spent operating the boat, I think you're doing really, really well. So uh, he says one of the easier issues uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on. Uh, the boat originally had double backstays from the transom all the way to the top of the mast. The prior owner switched this system and took one of the old stays and made it into a single centerline backstay, then added an adjustable Dyneema piece at the bottom. Okay, so we've got two backstays coming off the top of the rig, 
that's already a great thing, right? You've got the redundancy of having two 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 major components there at the back. In case one goes, you're not gonna lose the rig out the front of the boat. But what someone's done is they've taken one of them off and then at the bottom where it comes, you know, within I imagine like sort of six feet of the deck, they then added a piece of Dyneema that went up from the old mounting point on one quarter through a block I imagine on the bottom of the new single centerline stay and then brought it down on the other side, I'm imagining, added some kind of um, cascade, some kind of uh, block and tackle so that you can adjust the backstay. So let's have, we'll have a chat about why they might have done that in a second. Let's finish Tom's question. Um, he says, but it gets hung up too much and too often on the mainsail. After talking with some other RM owners and thinking about it, I have three options, with the first being the way I'm thinking of going as it's the simplest, but will provide the greatest flexibility long term. Number one, two adjustable Dyneema stays, basically like a running backup setup, running, sorry, running back stay setup, except that um, they can stay on all the time or be put on for some mast bend. Uh, or if me or someone else wants to do a square top main, as some RM owners have them, that can become a full running back stay setup. I can, number two, keep my basic setup, but make the single wire very short and have the adjustable part go much higher, thereby providing more room for the sail to swing through. I think the prior owner didn't raise the adjuster high enough, maybe because of his SSB antenna, which I'm pretty sure I'm going to eliminate. Two, and option three, two wire stays from the top, non-adjustable. I guess that's the original setup. What do you think? If you don't have any time currently, we can discuss by phone. Well, here you go, Tom. You get a whole podcast, much easier. So let me have a think about this. The first thing is Tom's Tom's third option there, which is the original, is two um, wire stays running from the top of the rig down to the back quarters of the boat. So if we were going to design the boat and we were thinking about that, we've now created uh, a triangle in our rigging, which is the mast on one side, this back stay running down to the very back of the boat on the other side of the triangle, and then the deck essentially running from where this back stay meets the boat all the way to the base of the mast. That's the three sides. So whatever our mainsail is going to be, it's basically going to have to fit through that triangle. Obviously, the boom is up in the air somewhat, and uh, the boom's um, aft end will be somewhat forward of the the, the, the stay and, and away from it. But the sail itself sounds like it's clipping that line. Now, why would the sail be clipping that line? If the boom is inside that triangle, surely there should be a smaller triangle, which is the boom and the mast and then the leech of the mainsail, and all that just needs to be inside of the triangle that the backstay, the mast, and the deck create. Well, a lot of times on boats, that's not how it goes, and that's because we want more power from the mainsail. You know, if it's really good conditions, and the boat's battling along with a full main, and it's really, you know, got fantastic conditions to sail to, all well and good. It's uh, You're going to be flying along at whatever's your hull speed. Perfect. But oftentimes the wind's a little bit lighter and then having more sail area can mean that you can get more from your boat even though you're not in the most optimal wind conditions. So what we do is we're trying to make the mainsail bigger. So how can we uh, improve the mainsail? Yeah, we can make the, the mainsail bigger. We can make the uh, mainsail more effective and more efficient. Um, what else can we do? We can sail the boat better. Okay, so that's our three options. Well, sail the boat better. I'll give Tom credit for that because he knows a heck of a lot about sailing. So I think he's probably got that covered. Can we make it more efficient? Well, that's kind of an interesting idea. We make it bigger or we make the sail more efficient. I will say this. It's my experience of my own sailing and a lot of other people sailing uh, that I've known over the years that sailors seem to put the least effort oftentimes into their sails. Racers are really, really hot on the sails. They're really, oh yeah, we've got to get the shape right and the bat intentions right and all these different things. But for most people who are cruising, it's uh, it's like the wheels or tires on your car. You're not really going out and checking the tread on your tires every day that you go out. And that's kind of like what happens with sails. You put them up, you put them down. And if there's something obvious going wrong with them, then you start to have a look a little bit more deeply. So there's probably some ways of making a mainsail more efficient and sailing the boat more efficient, but it feels like the best way of doing it, the most simple way of doing it would just be like, can we have a bigger mainsail? That would be your first tier kind of approach to this. And that's what these 
other RM owners are trying to do. And it's what the sail designer was doing when they built the mainsail on Tom's boat, which is why the back of the mainsail is catching on the stay. So let's have a look at that. When RM originally designed the boat or the rigger designed the, the rig on that boat, they took two lines that come from the top of the mast and they brought them down to the corners. That means that as the sail flicks from one side to another, when it crosses the center line, it's already rapidly on its way to wherever it's going to end up on the tack that you're on when it meets the stay. The sail has already filled somewhat on the new um, new board. The new wind is in the sail. The new wind angle has been set up. And as the sail starts to take up that shape, it's got the natural curve to it that we would expect of a mainsail. That means that the battens are predisposed to flick past a stay. So if you've got stays which are on the quarter, you can then run quite a large mainsail knowing that when you tack or when you jibe, the mainsail will come, the back edge of the mainsail, the leech of the mainsail will come up against the stays, but the sail will flex into its curved normal shape and those stays will just flick past the backstay. The problem is if you've got a big mainsail, a mainsail that's kind of bit bigger than the space it's able to be in, in that triangle formed by the, the boom, the backstay and the mast, if it's a bit bigger than it needs to be in there and the backstay is on the center line, the main ends up in a situation where it starts to move onto the new board. It changes from one side to the other. And just as it starts to kind of take up shape on the other side, the upper battens start to lean up against the backstay. Just the tips of them just start to lean up against the backstay. But then there's not enough pressure in the mainsail often to flick the battens through and you end up with the back edge of the upper part of the mainsail hung up on the backstay. I've had this a lot with um, my Whitbread 60 Challenger, which we'll describe a little bit later on how we how we dealt with that or how we got into the problem and how we got out of the problem, I guess. Um, but we can let's first understand why the mainsail would be bigger than the space it's able to be in. We know that making a bigger mainsail will give us more power. Awesome. No problem at all. Let's do that. How are we going to make it bigger? Well, we can make it taller on the on the luff, but we're going to need a bigger mast. We can make it bigger on the foot, but we're going to need a, a bigger boom, and that's going to create a lot of problems, not least the fact that um, maybe the boom's coming into the steering area where you stand and, uh, you know, and, and, and pilot the boat, or maybe that the, the boom itself is going to come up against the backstay. That'd be kind of extreme, but it's, it's possible. So where can we make the mainsail bigger without compromising some of the major physical characteristics of the boat? And the answer is in the leech of the sail. What we can do is instead of having a straight line from the clue up to the head of the sail, we can make that into a curved line. A curved line. So now we've got a triangle which has got two straight sides, but the hypotenuse has got a big curve to it, creating quite a lot more area inside the triangle of the mainsail. Now, this is called roach. This is the roach of the mainsail. Any material which is greater than the straight line between uh, clue and head, that's called roach. How much roach? On some of our boats, we've got meters of roach. Um, on other boats, you may have a little bit of negative uh, roach in there where it actually fades away from the straight line, often caused by the sail being uh, trimmed and, and cut over time to take out tattered uh, leech. Um, I guess the, the craziest place where we'd see that is something like a trisel, which has a really cutaway back edge. It has negative roach, if that's even a phrase. But we get the idea. If it's not exactly on the leech line, the straight line between clue and head, then we've got some amount of roach. So we can add roach up to a certain amount of, uh, up to a certain amount, at which point it's gonna start getting hung up on the backstay. And that's what Tom's describing. Now, if it's the standard RM mainsail, it's probably designed to flick past the original rigging setup with the two stays coming down to the back corners. But what Tom says is that a lot of the RM owners are thinking of getting square top or flat top mainsail. So that's where we can jump into this and there's a bit wider kind of um, uh, area to discuss with, with others who don't own an RM1050. So why are people going for these big flat top mainsails? Why are all the race boats like that now? Well, as always in sailing, there's some kind of um, cycle happening. There's some kind of um, circle of, of life going on where ideas come, they flourish, then they're replaced by something else. And then we seem to find our way back to it. The perfect one is something like Dyneema. We used to have lashings made of natural fibers and they were good up to a couple of hundred kilos, a couple of thousand pounds, whatever it was. And then we got off those and we went on to metal lashings, 
called shackles which are easily opened and closed voila we've got a fantastic solution that's better than the original but then when we had the development of Dyneema and modern composites that allow us to have much, much stronger cordage and much stronger ropes, suddenly we've got a position where we can put lashings back on things. And most of the rigging on my Open 60 is actually lashed into position. It's easy to uh, remove. It's easy to uh, put in place. And if you do it with the rig slack, because we have jackable rigs, you can tie everything on, measure it, and then pressurize the rig, put it up onto its blocks and make it uh, uh, tight and hard and uh, put all the rigging under the tension it's meant to be under. And suddenly that loose, easy to create lashing has become as strong as steel and it's there uh, holding the mast up. One of the other areas that we see this with is sail design. Now, if we go back to like 1910, we had some boats which are really at the cutting edge of what was going on in gaff sail technology. A gaff sail, of course, is a four-sided sail. Um, the Mon boats that we're sailing with now have Bermudan rigs primarily, um, and they have, uh, well, they have Marconi rigs, let's be honest. They have Marconi panel rigs. You've got spreaders and you've got the little wire diagonals and the uprights and the kind of classic sailboat rig. That's called a Marconi panel rig. And then Bermudan mainsails that go up those rigs. Nice, long, thin, tapering uh, sails. They came in in about 1904. And I know this because I used to drive a boat called Merry Maid. And Merry Maid was the first boat ever to put a Marconi panel rig up. I've, I've mentioned this before. It snapped, it was taken off, and the original owners went back to a gaff rig. But other boats caught on, notably boats like Britannia and what we now know as the J-class yachts. And because of... Guglielmo Marconi inventing uh, a transmitter rigging system that would allow him to put his transmitters for his um, Marconi wireless all throughout cities and things where there wasn't much space. That rigging solution suddenly went over to boats and we've got what we've got now and uh, much better it is for it. But that doesn't mean that then it was somehow much, much better than gaff rig. It was different and it was it has its benefits. But at the end of the day, gaff rig sails have a huge amount of sail area up in the air. And that huge amount of sail area is power. It's power in light airs. Now, their benefit was always offset by the fact that back in the day, we were using very heavy canvas for the sails. And also, of course, the spars that we were using, the gaff spar, would be made of wood and would therefore be very, very heavy. So the Bermudan rig allowed us to bring weight lower down, but it we lost that kind of... Um, that kind of power that we had previously from those big square top mainsails. A gaff sail would normally be set in light airs with a jack topsail, which would just be in the gap between the mast and the and the yard. And when you think of that, think of like a, a Thames barge or something like that with a really evolved gaff rig. And then think about something like a Volvo 65, one of the latest round the world race boats. Their mainsails look kind of very, very similar. And I can say that beneath the skin, it is very, very similar because that big batten that holds the new square top mainsails out in that square shape, that big batten that goes up diagonally, it's called the gaff batten. It's basically replacing in fiberglass or in carbon fiber what our sailing ancestors were doing in wood 100, 120 years ago. So everything from the past doesn't have to be written off in sailing. We can go back and we look at it with new modern materials and say, hey, is there something in this? The benefit of a square top mainsail or an old gaff sail is that you had a huge amount of sail area high up in the air. And as we know, wind speed increases as you go up the rig. Um, even up the rig of a 40 or 50 foot boat, there is a noticeable difference in wind angle and wind strength. So if you can get more sail area up in the air, suddenly it's another way of getting power from the mainsail. With a Bermudan mainsail, we have to uh, limit ourselves uh, to increasing the amount of roach because we can't do anything to the mast, we can't do anything to the boom. Those are set by the physical properties of the boat, but we can make the triangle into more of a square and suddenly make a lot more sail area. Now, the issue when we do that is that that power may translate into the boat being a lot more tippy. The boat was designed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, something like that, even 90s. It's going to have been designed to be light and to have uh, to be relatively tender, uh, easy to tip over compared to a heavy old gaff boat of 1910. And it's going to be a lot more tender than a modern race boat. Now, why a modern race boat so much more stiff than a little yacht? Because they have very deep, very heavy keels. That's one way of doing it. 
or because they have form stability, that the actual shape of the boat, it's wider, it's flatter, it's kind of closer to being a raft in some ways, and so it's not as easy for the wind to tip it over in light areas, light airs, <laughs> light areas and light airs. In light airs, it can't tip the boat over because there's form stability. So if you look at a lot of modern boats, they've got quite square chines running down the side of them, quite flat underside, certainly race boats, they are a lot more stiff than uh, a classic boat, certainly things like the IOR boats back in the past, which are very rolly underneath, very rounded, um, and f for that could not take much sail area up high in anything other than very, very light airs. So the mainsail area of a boat designed in, as I say, any time before basically the 2000s, it's going to be suited to the Bermudan rig that it's on. But sail manufacturers, sail designers are getting so much better that what they can do is they can stop some of that element of the boat tipping over by flattening off the mainsail massively and that reduces the amount that it wants to heel the boat over. We can also look at the fact that you might reef a little bit earlier than you've been expecting previously but you've got more sail area up in the air because you've got a square top or a fat top mainsail and therefore you've still got more power available. So you put in the reef, you drop the center of effort a little bit lower down and you've still got that power there even though you've got a reef in. So it's kind of like beneficial. So we've got sail area in light weather. We've got a way of increasing our mainsail without having to go down the, the roach thing. We've now made the top of the mainsail square. So it, it's, it's good all round. As long as we put a reef in a little bit earlier, we've got extra canvas that we can use for, for light airs. It's all good, apart from the backstays. Big problem, because if the boat was designed any time, well, if the boat was designed for any kind of setup other than a flat top mainsail, you're gonna have an issue because that big square mainsail is not gonna fit through the triangle described by the mast and the backstay. So what we have to do is we have to come up with a new backstay solution. And of course, that is running backstays. I know Tom's aware of that because he sailed so many miles on the boats that Spartan runs. So with the running backstays, we have two backstays coming from the top of the rig down to the back corners of the boat, but at any one time, only one of them is on. So with that possibility in play, suddenly we can have a mainsail which is way bigger than the triangle described by the backstay and the mast. It, it doesn't matter anymore. And that is where Tom's thoughts, I think, are going, and it's certainly where the RM owner's thoughts will be going if they want to have a flat top main. If Tom goes back to the original two-stay setup, that will allow his mainsail to go uh, through nice and easily because the main will already be somewhat curved. It'll be kind of on its way to wherever it's going and the, the um, battens will flick past the backstay. That's how RM designed it. But if he wants any more roach or if he wants to go to a flat top main, we're going to have to go to full running backstays. The full running backstays mean that you can you don't have to worry about how big the top of the mainsail is. We've said there's some benefits. We've said that there's um, uh, propulsive benefits there and that uh, we can potentially still have the same amount of power even though we put a reef in. All of that sounds good. But um, we are going to have to start to run the backstays as a component of the boat that needs to be dealt with during jibing and tacking operations. As it is right now, uh, or even with RM's original version with the two stays, you don't have to worry about the backstays. The mainsail will flick past them once they're back in their original position, as long as you don't have too much roach or a flat top main, it'll just flick past them. Don't worry about the mainsail. But there is time during a sailing evolution, like a tack or a jibe, to do like one other job. And the other job that Tom's thinking of, and I'm thinking of, is that you can release one backstay and put the other one on, or rather put another one on and then release one. Let's make sure we get that right. I am not responsible if your mast falls down, okay? Um, the, the thing we have to be aware of is that the only time that we'll have to do this is in quite light airs, because as soon as it starts to get to heavier airs, even maybe not quite as heavy as your reef now, that flat top or big roach mainsail is going to be going into the first reef. Once it's in the first reef, you don't have to worry about the backstays again. They're just doing their own thing. Both of them are on. You've got the full redundancy of there being two separate stays. It's all good. So we could get more power from the mainsail by making it flat top and making more area up in the air. We'd have to get rid of the original backstay setup, but we could turn them into running backstays, take essentially 
stays which are about the length of the one which Tom has got in the center of the boat now obviously someone's taken the long line that went down to the back of the boat and they then shortened it and put this adjustable Dyneema strop in there what Tom's going to do I'd imagine is make some Dyneema backstays that run from the top of his rig port and starboard bring them down to a point which is you know appropriate for the boat I, I don't know exactly what that would be on my boats it would be six foot off the deck I think on a, a 30, 40 foot boat, they're going to be like three foot off the deck, but then they're going to have some uh, block and tackle at the bottom, or they're going to have a little turning block, which takes them up to a winch or takes them up to another block and tackle. Or if you want to really have a flashback to a high field lever, I don't know if anybody's run boats with high field levers on for backstays, but they are very good, if not a little bit uh, dated now, but you can then run the backstays when you have got the boom on the port side, the, the backstay on the starboard side is holding the mast up. When you want to tack or jive the boom across to the starboard side of the boat, you're going to need to bring on the port backstay, get it so it's pretty tight. And then at the moment that you uh, flick the sails from one side to the other, you bring that backstay on nice and tight and let the other guy off. It does create a few extra steps in some scenarios. But I've got to say, as all of the sailing I've done for the last decade has been on boats with full running backstays, it's not that difficult. It's just not, okay? It's a little bit extra, but it's not that difficult. And if you're in any situation where you're with family, friends, and you just don't want to worry about that stuff, just put the first reef in. The mainsail's probably going to still have pretty much the same motive force available, even though it's got a first reef in because it's got a big flat top main on the top of it. So I think in there is something for Tom that should be helpful I think he should go down the direction that he's already kind of eyeballing, which is get those uh, wire stays off. At the top of the mast is going to be two anchor points already for the original RM setup. He can um, go into those. He may have to make a bit of a change to the way those, um, those mounting points are at the top of his rig, but he's going to connect on there, lash in some Dyneema backstays, bring them down to an appropriate level off the deck, and then work out how he's going to tension those up. It could be as simple as a couple of little block and tackles down on the deck that he hooks them into. It may be that they come down, go through a turning block, and then have block and tackles on the side decks or go to winches, or that would be for, for Tom to work out knowing the, the layout of his boat. But with that in place, he could then run the mainsail he's got no problem at all, and it would just flick through without any issue. He wouldn't have to ever adjust those things. But if he does want to put a flat top main on and take advantage of that extra power and light airs, it's easily done. You just then start to run in light airs with a full main, a full running backstay solution. So I hope that's helpful to Tom. And I say, if you want to get your questions answered, you can, of course, email me at csmthemariner at gmail.com. And at some point, I will bring them into these uh, podcasts, these questions and tangents ones, and give you the answer that you're looking for. But if you need something a little bit more immediate, like I am in the boatyard, <laughs> you know, then I can uh, text those uh, people who are Patreon supporters back, and I'm I'm happy to do that within reason. Don't text me at like three in the morning with there's water coming in. Like I'm not going to be able to help very much with that one. Okay, let's go on to the uh, next question. Something very different away from the the dryness of rigging. Although I know a lot of you are very interested in that kind of stuff. Um, we're going to be looking a little bit at taking family and friends out sailing and what it is to be a decent skipper. So this question comes from John Stewart. He's a Patreon supporter. Thanks very much for that, John. As I say before, the Patreon support has been so, so important to things keeping going here uh, for the last two years. And uh, I really appreciate everybody there. If you want to join that community, head over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And uh, at $5 a month, you're supporting the podcast, the Rare Nautical Reads podcast, uh, the YouTube channel, all that stuff. It really makes a big difference. And uh, get involved in the conversation. John sent this uh, question in uh, just end of March, it looks like. So not too bad, almost kind of like on top of that. Um, but I say, if we can, uh, got a really good subject like this, then I really want to give it some time. So I hope that this fits in now. We can give it a good half an hour to chat through. So John's uh, question 
it's it's lovely and long. I'm going to cut some bits out and add some bits in to make it clearer for you. But let's jump in and see what he says. He says, hope you're doing well. Is the baby allowing you some sleep? If you weren't aware, I have little Isaac in my life now, 12 weeks old and his mother Kat doing very, very well. And I am um, very happy that during any solo sailing uh, interviews I've ever done, I've always said that um, I'm sure having a baby is much harder than solo sailing. And indeed it is. Um, you, you can put the mainsail up as a solo sailor and then lie on the ground for 20 minutes and, and have a snooze. You can't do that with a baby. You can't think, oh, I'm a bit tired. I'll just lie down in the supermarket here and have 20 minutes sleep, even though you would like to. But um, I will say that Kat is handling the lion's share of what's going on with Isaac during the night, which is allowing me to have the sleep I need to be able to get the boat ready for the Newport Bermuda race and all the other things that we're trying to do at the moment with the company. And um, then I support her as much as I can during the daytime, giving her some time to breathe, uh, kind of kind of like a relay race. I guess that's the way of doing it. But um, yes, the baby is well and I am getting asleep if you call four or five hours sleep. And all parents know what that's about. He says, I'd like to ask your advice if you don't mind. Absolutely not. He says, I don't want to bore you, but if I can give you a little background on me, it might help me actually get to the bit where I ask your advice. No problem at all. Uh, I'm 32, married, father of two boys, seven, ten. My main job is as a carpenter. Uh I work on new homes and on building sites. I've been sailing most of my life. My parents had several small cruising boats in the northeast of England. We're from Yorkshire. Well, you know, it's okay, I guess. Um, I, for those who don't know, I'm from Lancashire in the UK uh, and uh, John here is from uh, Yorkshire and uh, like hundreds of years ago uh, there was a, a war called the War of the Roses and um, John's side lost uh, and my side won and because I'm from the UK, you know, that's like current news for us, the War of the Roses and how it takes, that's probably still in the newspapers in some parts of Yorkshire. Um, well... <laughs> I'm not making any friends here. Um, he says, uh, I've been sailing most of my life. Oh, parents had some more cruising boats. Absolutely, he's from Yorkshire. Good. Didn't need to go back over that, but there I was. I did a fair bit of dinghy racing in my teens. I now live in Fareham near Gosport, which I do know because that's where I was based for my time as a clipper skipper and before I took uh, Spartan around the world. He says, I have my own boat, a Bavaria 320 from 1992. Awesome. When Bavarias were built properly, he says. Uh, we mostly sail around the Solent, but anywhere between Chichester and Weymouth is usual. We have plans to get to the Channel Islands this summer. My wife's not really into it, so it's sometimes difficult to get away. Anyway, I've always wanted to work in sailing later in life. So last year I did my Yacht Master offshore and got it commercially endorsed. Good man, John. Well done. I took the exam on my boat, but had a couple of days of prep with a guy from a small local sailing school. After the exam, he asked if I'd be interested in doing some work for them. So this year, I've got a few skipper charters booked in and two cross channels, Portsmouth to Cherbourg. And I have and I should be doing my cruising instructor's exam in the November. So it's all moved quicker than anticipated. Indeed, it has. And to anybody that has aspirations in sailing, I'm not sure if this is exactly what the RAA would say. But I would say that the, um, the syllabus, which is given out for um, what's that called? Competent crew and coastal skipper and all those things. It's awesome. You know, I will say this. The RAA syllabus is brilliant. But if you have an idea like, hey, maybe one day I want to be in charge. I want to take my family or friends away or something like that. Just start aiming at the yacht master like from the start. Maybe you're it's all way over your head. Go off and go down your own rabbit holes and work out, you know, what all these different things are that they're talking about in the Yachtmaster syllabus. The RWA has a brilliant, highly highly um, illustrated syllabus for the Yachtmaster that makes it all quite clear. But at the end of the day, what's going on in the Yachtmaster cylinder, uh, cylinder, the Yachtmaster uh, syllabus, that's what's actually going on in sailing. So you may as well like start reading the the book that's actually going to see you through rather than any other smaller books. Don't Don't sell yourself short unless you're really, really concerned about getting every piece of paper along the way, I would do what uh, John's done. Get your uh, Yacht Master as soon as you can, because of course you can just do the theory part online at home, kind of get a feel for it all, and then get out in the water. I'm not saying you don't need to go and do a lot of sailing and learn about stuff, but um, once you've got that Yacht Master thing sorted out, man, you can get a job like John's done, right? Suddenly it's uh, people paying you to go sailing. Anyway, let's continue. He says, uh, my first two-day trip is next Thursday or Friday. Uh-uh. I may have missed that if you wanted the advice by then. I've got a father and his two 17-year-old sons coming on board the school boat to do some downwind sailing. We will be having both a symmetrical spinnaker and cruising chute to play with. 
plus they want to log some night hours. The boat's a Junot Sunfast 37. I'm happy with the sailing aspect and hoping for fair weather. So all good so far. What do you need me for, John? He says, so what I'd like to know from you is what makes a good skipper? What can I do to ensure these guys have a great couple of days to get as much out of them as possible and leave them wanting more? Are there any don'ts? Don'ts? Are there any don'ts that spring to mind? Hmm. Capitalized as well. Don'ts. We have uh, only two days, so we'll be staying local. I think I'm just a bit apprehensive. This is my first paid gig as a skipper on a boat. I haven't sailed before. Do you have any wisdom to impart to me? Well, I'm feeling immediately like I should have probably responded to this a bit earlier. Sorry, John. Uh, he says, sorry for waffling on, but don't worry, man. It's, um, <clears throat> we're all wafflers here, right? He says, I value opinion. You're clearly very good at this stuff. Well, I'm good at bits of it. I'm good at bits of it. And one of the bits that I am uh, hopefully good at um, is is going out on the water with people who are new on the water. I think if I could say I was good at anything in sailing, it'd be that. I'm not the fastest, definitely not. I'm not the most, uh, the best sail trimmer. I'm good at fixing things. But if anything, having made lots of mistakes doing it, I would say that sail training and getting people excited about being on the water is uh, is one of the things I would hope I'm 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 kind of okay at. Um, how do you get people to get the most out of their sailing? This is a time honoured question. Let's have a look what the history says. I think that's the first thing. History says that we go sailing on a boat, you're going to get shouted at by some red-faced man, probably quite fat and uh, unable to complete the task that you're currently engaged in because he's too fat to get over the traveller or, or too useless to, to come along and do it for himself. And um, you're going to be berated and kind of put down and, uh, and shamed um, as this person gets more and more stressed and more and more worked up about whatever it is that's particularly going on. So I think we can all agree that's not exactly the best way to get someone excited about something. If you're a golf coach and you were going off, is that what they're called, golf coach? I don't know, I don't know anything about golfing. Um, but if you were doing that job, golf pro, maybe that's the right word. word. Um, if you're a golf pro and you were screaming at the person <laughs> who you're teaching golf in the way that some sailors scream at their crew, I don't think you'd last very long. <laughs> in fact, there's not many things that you would do. You think about John's background there as a carpenter. If you're on a job site and someone just starts berating you and shouting, well, that's not too uncommon for work sites, but it's certainly a lot of people who are looking across going, this person is unprofessional and out of line. So let's not take any examples from generic stereotypical history uh, when we're looking at what makes a good skipper there is underneath it all a requirement to be safe and to be knowledgeable and to be uh, appropriately certified and to be um, making your passage plan and all those kind of things which are like super basic to it like we we get that we, we, we get that that's that's the easy stuff right that's easy stuff in that we expect the person that's driving the boat to know what's going on. And John's very humble and is saying, hey, I'm kind of new to this and, and how do I do it? So I'm imagining he's probably going to keep himself in an area where he's happy to go and where it's appropriate for that 37 boat, 37 foot boat to go. But um, you still could get caught out in a, in a blow. You still could get too close to a shore. You could still have a damage or an injury or whatever. How does he make that into a still positive experience for the people coming on board. And I think it starts with trust and it, it starts with empathy. And I'm not sure that empathy is a word that's often used uh, when describing how skippers should you know kind of interact with their crew. At the end of the day, as the skipper, you've probably got a lot more experience on the boat than the people that you're talking to. You probably have more experience on that boat and you have more an awareness of like what's going to happen next. It's no good with crew doing the, the old mushroom thing, right? Um, feed them shit and keep them in the dark. That's, that's not going to work. It's going to work short term. It's a short term management technique, which the military often employs, but it's not good long term with people that you want to particularly like develop into a new sport. I think it starts alongside the dock. I think it starts when you do your safety briefing. It, it starts when you interact with people. You notice little things about them, that you catch their name early on and that you approach some of the things that through empathy you can understand are going to be very important to them that day as a skipper you're thinking oh i don't know about those ships coming down southampton water i got to watch out for the brambles in the middle of the bank and i got to work out for you know nab towers here and then the wind's going to pick up on bembridge ledge there and all the things which are solent based 
That's the skipper's thing. The crew are wondering, man, am I going to be able to learn how to pump this toilet or am I going to have to hold it till I get back to the shore? Am I going to be able to eat on this one? Are we going to get cold? All these crazy noises when the boat's tacking, is something going to hurt me? Is this thing going to tip over? Like, that's the stuff that crew are wondering about on the first couple of times they go out. And when skippers do this thing where they're like completely blasé to that, almost like push it to one side, um, it, it doesn't help anybody. If the skippers are thinking that it's making them looking more pro, it's not. Now, John's working in a, a sailing school, so of course he wouldn't think of doing that. But if you're going down the local yacht club and you're going out for the night, um, that's the kind of thing that happens. I remember the very first yacht race I did, it was out of Hong Kong going up to Pedra Blanco. Is that correct? Like this rock column that's out in the middle of the South China Sea. It was up to that and rounded back down. And I don't know what my job was, but certainly some of it seemed to have been mopping up water from the cabin floor because that's where I slept and that's what I seemed to be doing. And safety briefing, I don't think it was a safety briefing. I think the safety briefing was don't leave the boat until we get back to the dock. You know, it's that kind of thing. So not helpful in any way. Um, and, And actually, to be honest, the experience that I had right there and then on that day doing that race, it probably would have put me off sailing. But I was invited on that trip by the captain of the uh, the the sail training vessel that I was working on and after we'd had that experience he kind of debriefed me we went back to sail training and, and I was able to assuage the pain but just getting shouted at and yelled at through the night and uncomfy and all the rest of it that's that's not good that's not good for sailing right so I don't think that John is in any way pushing aside people's um, concerns because he's working at a sailing school right now and it's you know He's, he's got his own kids. He sort of sees it from both points of view. But it's absolutely essential that during that, that safety briefing, the crew get an opportunity to kind of view you, kind of understand you. Is he funny? Is he shouty? Is he edgy? Is he going to be helping us to fix the dinner? Or is he just going to stay at the helm and bark orders? You know, if I ask this person the second time how the toilet works, is he going to laugh and snort and wave me off? Like, you get to tell it all right there. And I can remember doing a, um, I was in uh, Hong Kong working as an outbound instructor and I had a group out on an island for an overnight solo experience and uh, one of the ladies in the group cut her finger and when I unpacked my medical pack, which we were in a kind of wilderness first response uh, situation more than two hours from primary care, so my medical pack was big, she almost fainted because I was unpacking this this like massive box of medical stuff, this tiny little thing, um, it, it got her nervous. And in, in that moment, I thought, Jesus, she's like really nervous, you know, way more nervous than I realized. But then as she kind of came to and we got some bit of sugar and water in her and settled her down, she said, this is, you know, she we started to chat a little bit. And she said, this is a great opportunity for me to see your professionalism because me standing in front of the group and telling them go here, go there, do the other, it's a completely contrived situation. Outward bound is not like uh, running um, ponies across America delivering the post. And yacht captains going out sailing on the Solon are not, you know, often to foreign lands to try and discover new places or deliver goods and cargo to a foreign shore. You're just going for a tootle around on a boat. Let's be serious. We're not curing cancer here, right? So the key thing is that... Um, we understand as sail trainers or as skippers taking our family, friends or or students out into the water that the requirements of the people coming onto the boat must be met first. Obviously, the safety stuff in the background, we understand that's all done by John and by the people that he's working for at that sailing school, that the boat is safe, that John's certification is correct and his knowledge is correct and everything else. But once that's done and the boat's ready and the people come on board, they're needs are what's most important and the place you can see this is in people's driving like my dad bless him I love my dad to bits I often talk to about him about him on the podcast and what a brilliant mechanic was he absolutely was but the downside of that was that he was a professional driver um, alongside being a, a mechanic and he used to drive like a flipping lunatic to the point that my poor mother was taking um uh, digest what they call those uh, indigestion tablets, Rene's in the UK or Tums in North America. She was taking those all the time whenever she went driving. She was so nervous of his driving. And whenever she would say, slow down, Peter, he'd be like, we're fine, we're fine, because he had this very high level approach to what's going on. But he often forgot that his primary responsibility as the driver was to convey the people where they were going uh, safely and smoothly and serenely, right? That's the thing he seemed to miss out. He had all of this skill in manipulating the machine, 
but he was using it to push the machine at the edge of what the machine could do instead of making it really pleasant for the folks on board. So I think that when you get people onto the boat and you want to give a great impression as a skipper, okay, you know, what clothing have you got for today? And yeah, okay, you've got um, cotton sweatpants on. That's not going to work so good. So you need to get some oil skins or we've got them or you can bring them or whatever. And okay, seasickness, you can give them the whole seasickness talk about, don't worry, as we go out onto the water, the boat's going to start moving, but there's lead on the bottom and the boat can tip over to here and you'll be fine. And you'd start taking them through every bit of it. And you say, hey, I'm going to be watching you. I'm going to be making sure that you're safe. So don't worry. If we get into a, a tricky situation, I just want you to get low down in the cockpit and I'll move around you and I'll sort things out. And that is how you get someone to start to trust you. That's how you get to show your professionalism as a sailor before you've even untied the boat, before you even left the dock. You're already showing them that, I've got your back. And that ultimately is what being the skipper is all about. I know that John's got two little ones there, seven and 10. The chap that he took sailing has got 17 year olds, but it doesn't matter if they're seven or 17. Uh, young people who haven't been ex experiencing going onto the boat before, they haven't got specific experience of that environment and they don't have any experience really of troubling difficult environments in their life. You know, Outward Bound that I worked for, that's what it does. It takes people out into the wilderness or out onto boats and it challenges them and it puts them through difficulties so that when they come back, they're kind of emotionally tougher. That's the origins of Outward Bound. We've talked about that before. It toughens folks up. So if you're seven or 17, maybe you haven't had many tough situations yet. If they've been good parents, Hopefully, <laughs> these kids haven't. So going out onto a boat might be the big thing that happens to them. Now, once we understand what's going on on a boat, like you're out in the Solent, which if you don't know the Solent in the UK, it's the south. You know that the, the UK looks like a witch riding a pig chasing a koala bear, right? Just look at a chart. You'll see what I mean. Um, underneath the pig's like belly, there's an island, a diamond-shaped island called the Isle of Wight. And the Y-shaped piece of water which uh, is above the Isle of Wight, is uh, the upper section of the Y is called Southampton Waters. And the two um, prongs of the Y going out on either side of this diamond-shaped island is called the Solent. And it's a mecca for sailing and has been for literally hundreds of years. When I was talking about rigging earlier and I was talking about Mary Maid, she's from 1904. She was racing in the Lipton Cup in 1904 in the Solent, okay? The J-class yachts in the Solent. So um, it's a very busy um, very dynamic piece of water. There's very strong tides running through there. There's low-lying flat territory all kind of around. Some of it like Osborne House and things there, the Queen's um, Palace, um, beautiful to look at uh, areas. You know, it's, it's a fantastic place to be sailing. But man, there's a lot of boats around and there's a lot of commercial traffic. Big boats are coming down Southampton waters, um, big cruise ships, big car delivery ships, uh, all that kind of stuff is uh, is moving up and down those waters. So from a sailor's point of view, wow, the wind's blowing and you've got to consider the tide and there's loads of other boats around here and look at the beautiful scenery. And meanwhile, your crew are freaking out about the flapping of the mainsail. They've got a wet, sore ass because they've been sitting on a, a cockpit seat and you haven't given them anything to sit on to alleviate that. Or you haven't noticed that this person's very lightly built and they took a couple bumps and now they've got big bruises that they're trying to cover up and they don't want to go inside the boat because they don't want to puke but they really need to go to the toilet and attending to those things will get them back for the second go and then they can learn more about sailing and attending on the second go to things like hey let's get a meal i'll show you how to be safe in the galley and let's um get some now i see that you know, i'm banging my microphone here i've got my arms waving around like i'm an italian uh, singer here the uh the, the main thing is to attend to the details that are important to the crew. You drive the car to give your passengers smooth passage. You're not some kind of like pro-am race car driver trying to get to the supermarket. You're not, um, you know, about to go and sail around the world in the Volvo race when you're taking somebody out on a day on the Solent. Although a lot of people that go out onto the Solent kind of in their heads think they are about to enter the Volvo race. And this kind of brazen, blasé, like, I don't know, like stuff shirt, uh, stereotypical skipper thing. I'm sure it's not John style, but it, it is prevalent. And it is very, if you're not that, you're kind of somehow not in the club. And I would say that's why sailing is, uh, sailing at clubs 
is definitely, I think, on the on the on the decrease. Uh, I'm happy to look at any new data someone's got, but my understanding is that loads and loads and loads of new boats are being sold. Loads of old boats are being picked up off the market. People are getting out on the water, but they're not going to yacht clubs. And they're not going and seeking out what would be a traditional route into sailing because the stereotypes of the people that are going to teach them are just not acceptable anymore. Like I'm just kind of joking. So I'm thinking again about the like that golf pro who's just there at the golf course, just screaming at somebody, red face, you know, spittle flying out their mouth. That's the wrong club. And yet it seems ridiculous. And yet if you're on the bow of a 35 foot boat, only what, like, 25 feet away from the captain they may well be shouting at you red faced with spittle coming out the mouth it's what we're expecting so i haven't talked here about john's certification although he has it i haven't talked about john's experience because he was very clear about the fact he hasn't got huge amounts yet he's challenging himself as he's teaching others which is awesome but it's just about that attitude it's about the empathy it's about the focusing on the details with the crew and then making sure, of course, that the boat is safe and sound. And, you know, you're sailing along and um, you think, oh, you know, it's kind of kind of exciting hearing. See people like leaning back as the boat heels over going to windward. Where's the ultimate edge of that? Is the edge of how far you push the boat where you start to get nervous as the captain? Or is it when the crew who are new are starting to get nervous? Do you move them into a kind of learning zone and a, and, a, and a development zone by pushing the boat a little bit further? Or do you just hijack their day and turn it into something very, very nerve wracking? Are you suiting what your boat's doing to the tolerance of the most tolerant crew member? Or are you suiting it to the upper limits of the least tolerant crew member? You know what I'm saying? So you've got to you've got to recognize as you go into it as skipper, I love that you said skipper and not captain. In North America, everyone's a captain. And I respect that people want to be uh, termed in that way. That's their choice. But for me, I keep the word captain for people that took more than a decade to get to where they are at. You know what I'm saying? So if you're a military captain, I think, and I mean like a naval captain, I think you should be called captain. And if you're a merchant naval captain, you should be called captain as well. And if you're the captain of a 85-foot round-the-world race yacht, you may well ask people to call you captain. That's totally groovy. But there's a lot of other people who are going out on the water who are not like, you know, a career based in this and hundreds of thousands of miles. They're skippers, like a little skippy stone skipping across the water. They're kind of in the water, out the water. They're skippers. I'm a skipper, right? I'm not uh, a military captain or anything else. Okay, I've got a lot of miles, but I drive fast boats and they rack up the miles quickly. But I'm a skipper. That's what I call myself that. And that, I think, that's where you should start with this, kind of like a little bit of humility, a little bit of empathy, some real basic things. And when you can say to people, look, um, I'm kind of new to this myself. Like, I'm totally able to handle this boat. I'm totally able to handle what's going on here in the in the English Channel. But I tell you right now, if it starts to get too rough, if it starts to get too crazy, we're going to look at each other. I'm going to give you the thumbs up. We're going to put the sails down. We're going to motor back in. Now, is that giving up? Is that, uh, is that doing the wrong thing? Is to, to admit like you can't take on everything that's out there? No, because the crew themselves can't handle half the things that you can. So when they know that they can trust you not to expose them to danger, not to expose them to shame, not to expose them to the stereotypes that they're most nervous about in a skipper. So I hope there's something in there for you, John. I think because of the nature of your email, I think you get what I'm driving at. I think that sailing for too long has been focused around lots of kind of particularly rah-rah men who are kind of, okay, boys, let's go, like the kind of uh, rugby boys kind of thing. It's kind of cool. Jocks aren't the best sailors. Jocks maybe kind of go running in where angels fear to tread, you know? I think people who are coming new into sailing, family members who want to come sailing with you, you got to keep it relaxed you got to say, hey, this is where we're going to cut things off when you're nervous, when you're worried, when you want to go back in. That's when we're going to do that. And then within that trusting agreement that you've come to, there is the opportunity as they start to get more happy with this. Hey, you know, we've been out here three or four hours. You know, I said that, uh, um, you know, I keep you safe. Well, how are we doing so far? Everybody good? You're happy? You got something to eat? Absolutely. 
Um, right, what we can do is, you see over there, that like squall, it's coming this way. So let's prepare for it, but then the wind's gonna get stronger, the boat's gonna heal over. I want you to zip up your, your waterproofs now. Let's check the tension on our life jackets. It's gonna be exciting, it's gonna be dramatic. I gotta tell you, if it gets too windy, I'm gonna turn downwind. We've got speed uh, and, and, and steerage, and we've got safe area down here. And you can take them through this like somewhat renegotiation of this little contract. And we're gonna say, hey, we're gonna have a little bit of excitement here. Let's go for it. Or we're going to now put the mainsail up and uh, you've all been relaxing, but you know, we're going to get in. It's going to be about two or three minutes work. We're going to stop every 20 seconds and, and work on uh, some, some breaths between the exercise. Like you can, you can give it to them in bite-sized portions. You don't have to like take them off the dock into a force 10. And if you agree on the dock, this is all going to be super, super gentle. You don't have to hold yourself to that if their trust is starting to build and if the conditions allow you to have some small opportunities to to push them into that learning zone, slightly out the comfort zone, into the learning zone, but not so far that they're into you know like the fear zone that lies lies beyond. When somebody goes, hey, let's go into that. Uh, I know out where you are, John. If you go out to St. Anthony's Head, is that right? There's a load of um, overfalls out there. So I used to take my round the world crew through the overfalls deliberately when the tide was running because it's really really rough and it's really shocking and. They needed to kind of get to grips with that a little bit because we were going to sail around the world. So it was appropriate. But I didn't do it on the first day. That would be insanity, right? So is there anything else I can add to that? Um, oh, I know. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing is that my observation is that humans run on uh, oxygen, water and sugar. And uh, it shouldn't be underestimated uh, how important those are. If you're going into a situation where, hey, uh, this squall's coming this way. It's going to be windy. We've got some work to do. Let's get a little sugary snack on deck. If you have been through something, people have got wet, cold, uh, or a lot of excitement where the adrenaline started running, again, water and sugar and allow let their blood sugars balance back up. If you go through a gyre, it's a bit, you know, the boom's swinging around and all this kind of stuff. The best thing to do is to debrief that with a little sugary snack. People can really start to get much more anxious, much more nervous of what's going on around them um, than they might otherwise be if their blood sugars drop. And obviously, if people are nervous about seasickness, then they um, they can they can end up getting quite low blood sugar quite easily because they don't eat properly. So looking after the basics, looking after the basic emotional needs, looking after the basic physical needs. You don't need to raise your voice. I know you know that, John, because you'll have already been watching other stuff I've been doing. And saying to people, I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm not going to raise my voice unless it's dangerous. And then I'm going to raise my voice. You're going to really hear me at that point, okay? But uh, if you know their names and you can say, hey, Bob, turn around. Like, you know, and then Bob's looking at you. Then you can go back to your normal voice. If it's a don't put your finger in there, uh, Sally, well, then you can say, Sally, stop, you know? And people aren't going to feel offended by that. But if you just start letting loose on folks, my personal belief is that you're actually showing kind of showing your ass a little bit there that's i'm not saying you john but uh i think when people start yelling and shouting on boats you're just kind of showing me what you don't know some aspect of what's going on here is you don't know a lot of the afterguard shouting at foredeck on race boats is that they don't know exactly what the people on the front are doing they can't really remember themselves exactly which way the spinnaker sheets go or they don't understand why the kite's not going up because the halyards are wrapped or whatever it is they don't kind of know so they just start shouting more and more and more so I guess that leads me on to the, the, the closing point. And this is one I'm often asked. I say you can't shout at folks on the deck of a boat. It's not helpful. People say, well, how do I get things done? And that is something which I've kind of evolved over the years. I've evolved it from working with people of all ages, all skill levels, all sorts of different nationalities. Remember, I used to work for um, Outbound Hong Kong with the Correctional Services Department of Hong Kong, taking uh, 12, was it 12 or 16 12, 12 uh, um, young teenage lads between 16 and 21 out who were in correctional services. Do you think that those Chinese prisoners really wanted to listen to me about stuff? And yet they needed to, to get the task done on the deck of the boat. Would shouting have helped? Absolutely not. It totally alienated me from that group of already disenfranchised young men. And, uh, and it would have been a total loss, but I got through somehow. And how did I get through? It's because I explained to them before we went sailing, here's the deal. When a car comes around the corner and there's a deer in the road, the light from the car's headlights hits the back of the eyes of the deer and that sends a signal to the brain which releases chemicals which makes the deer freeze. And that is about the worst thing that could possibly happen for the deer. The person in the car doesn't want it, the deer doesn't want it, 
and yet that's what's happened. They've frozen in the headlamps, okay? The same thing happens when you shout at people. It's been absolutely categorically proven this, and I went through it in the podcast called You Don't Have to Shout when we talked about shouting. Chemicals are released in the brain of your children when you shout at them, your crew when you shout at them, your co-workers, whoever you shout at in your <laughs> in your daily business. Uh, inside the brains of those people, chemicals are being released which literally freeze them up and make them unable to process. So is the best technique for getting someone to do something that's new and potentially complex to them at that moment to get them to do it right, is it a good idea to shout at them? Clearly, no. It's about as good idea as the deer standing still, okay? So how do we get past it? You get past it by you say, I need you to put another wrap on the winch. Bob, I need you to put another wrap on the winch. Bob, look at me. Bob, I need you to put another wrap on the winch. And that may seem insane to say that now, like you just keep repeating, keep repeating. But inside Bob's brain, as Bob gets nervous, that's the other time when chemicals that freeze you up are released. Bob's getting nervous. Bob can't 100% kind of get to grips with the information he's been given earlier that morning and the physical thing that's in front of him and the situation that's going on around him and you're a new person and all, all that stuff is new and Bob is frozen in the headlamps. So if you shout at him, you just make it way worse. So you just have to keep calmly repeating it. You can't like escalate your tone up, like modulate up, Bob, Bob, Bob. You've got to just keep saying, Bob, put the extra turn on the winch. I'm gonna need you to put the extra turn on the winch right now, Bob. Let's go for it, Bob. Let's put that turn on that winch. And in the end, something will go click in Bob's head and Bob will do the thing that you need him to do. And it's actually only normally after about three goes which might, again, sound kind of insane. Why would you just keep repeating yourself? But you keep repeating yourself because the other option is that the thing doesn't get done, which may be critical at that moment, um, or that you're just going to freeze Bob up even more, which is going to make it even worse. And of course, if you freeze Bob up, then you get to the next stage where you push Bob aside and do it yourself, and then you're deep, deep in the briar patch, like you've lost it at that point. Now you're just showing Bob that you're not on top of what's going on and uh, and Bob probably should have uh, shopped elsewhere for a sailing, sailing lesson. Or if Bob is your son, then maybe he should have popped out somewhere different in a different family with a different skipper as his dad. So <laughs> that's pretty harsh, isn't it? I guess it's a warning to myself. You know, I think of my little one now, Isaac, he's like, <clears throat> was he 12, 12 weeks old? So he's just looking about, he's all excited about what's going on in the world. I can with raising my voice, not that I do it, I can make him like focus in on me. And that's where I think people sometimes get the idea if you shout at somebody, like you can get their attention. Now they're looking at you. But if you're shouting instructions at them and you're really kind of going it fiercely, yeah, they look at you and then they stop thinking and they stop acting and that is absolutely the worst thing to happen. So if you're in a situation, you wanna build trust with people, show empathy from the very start, from your briefing, explain, hey, so what's going to happen? This is what we're going to do. These are the boundaries of what we're going to do. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to keep you inside your comfort zone. We'll maybe challenge ourselves a little bit later on if you're okay with that. And we'll discuss that at the time. But if we do get into a tricky situation, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to keep repeating the instruction. And the final answer, I guess, is uh, when you do sail training, you want to always work on the basis that you have the skill level to take over entirely on your own in the situation that you're in because you must never ever put uh, trainees in a situation where their actions are critical to what's happening. It's actually the reason why we changed the backstay setup. Oh my God, I'd like, I think I've connected the two subjects together. We connected the backstay setup on Challenger, our Whitbread 60 in such a way that we could have a permanent backstay on and a reef in, allowing our flat top main to go underneath that permanent backstay um, for when we're dealing with um, trainees, because it is unfair to be taking them to the start line of a race or to set off on a voyage, and that their skill level under pressure is the thing that's keeping the mast up. When you've got full running backstays, if you miss entirely, and uh, really, you know, it's a worst case scenario, you can damage or lose the rig. It's not fair to do that to somebody on their first couple of days sailing and not showing empathy to their situation. So we put this permanent backstay on, we put a first reef in, you'll see me going to a lot of start lines in very fair conditions in the Caribbean with a reef when all the other boats have full mainsails. And it's because my empathy is with the people that come on board and giving them the best possible time. And I don't really care about the result. Like that's my dirty secret is I don't particularly care about the result. I care about safety. I care about people being understood and that afterwards, hopefully they have a really positive experience and they wanna come back again. So. 
guess that's it. I hope that's helpful, John. I think my answer was as as waffly as you worried that your uh, question was, but we're in the same basket, right? So there we go. That's those two done. So um, I'm not sure where this fits in. Is this really a question and tangents? There wasn't very many questions. This is like uh, serious questions and not too much tangents. That's where I guess this one fits in. But uh, if you have any questions on any of the things I've spoken about here, feel free to email me at csm themariner at gmail.com of course you can go over to the mighty patreon.com forward slash the mariner and throw in with the crew there we're definitely getting better at that i'm really excited about patreon if you haven't heard of that before it's a way for creators like myself to directly engage with an audience without the middleman of having to sell what you're creating to a uh, a TV company and get it all up proposition is if you're getting some value from what I'm saying it's uh, courteous and showing empathy <laughs> your professionalism to pitch in and, uh, and and help out so if you can do that very much appreciated but we have come to the end of this hour so I shall sign off here and as always I say to you I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing you are safe and sound and if you're in the northern hemisphere enjoying the prospect of going sailing now it's getting nice I'm looking out the window the uh, trees are all green there's daffodils out here in Nova Scotia the sky is blue and I can see the rig of a boat that wants to go sailing very very soon so I better get off the microphone and onto the boat and get that ready and I'll speak to you in the next one cheers 